Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 18. We're going to talk about the problem of why Jesus' disciples did not fast, but John the Baptist's disciples did fast. We'll try to finish Mark 2 in this audio. Starting with verse 18 in Mark 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, who were the they that came? Well, that would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're complaining. What they're trying to do is to drive a wedge between John the Baptist's disciples, the fasting disciples, and Jesus' disciples who were not fasting. So let's see now why Jesus' disciples were not fasting. We're going to look at parallel passages in Matthew 9, starting with verse 14, and Luke 5, starting with verse 34. Well, notice in these two different passages that different people ask Jesus about the fasting question. For example, in Matthew 9, it says John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then in Luke 5, starting with verse, I said starting with verse 34, I meant starting with verse 33, they said to him, referring to the scribes and Pharisees, why do the disciples of John fast often and yours don't, but rather eat and drink? Why do we have different people asking Jesus the problem? Well, probably the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees probably instigated John's disciples to ask the question of Jesus. And so then John's disciples then go to Jesus. So the Pharisees go to John the Baptist's disciples first and complain about it. And then John the Baptist's disciples, either with a tone of reproach or a tone of inquiry, we don't really know, came to Jesus and said, well, why? how come you guys aren't fasting? Well, Jesus gives the answer because, hey, the wedding... It's the time of the wedding feast. He says in in Mark chapter 2, verses 19, Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. So he compares his presence with the Israelites as the presence of the groom at a feast. And, of course, you don't fast at a feast. The time will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, because they will be so sad that the groom is taken away. This is a... An intimation of Jesus' death again, which the disciples very rarely, if ever, caught and understood, because Jesus later on would tell them flat out, I'm going to be crucified, and they still couldn't believe it, all the way up to the very end. But at any anyway, that, that rate, that's what he was talking about. Now let's talk about the reason why Jesus' disciples didn't fast. It's because of what the Pharisees had done to the fast. Now it started out in the law. The Mosaic Law only required fasting on the Day of Atonement once a year, but after the Babylonian exile, 586 B.C. and beyond, they, the Jews initiated four yearly fasts other than the Day of Atonement, so you're up to five a year. You can see this in Zechariah 7 and Zechariah 8. By the time it got to Jesus' time, pharisaical human nature being what it is, they just kept adding and adding and adding to the law. And so now, by Jesus' time, they were fasting twice a week. Luke 18, verse 12 says this, a Pharisee says this, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Twice a week. Now that was just a regularly scheduled fast. Monday and Thursday of every week, twice a week. According to John Gill, it was Monday and Thursday. But they had other fasts too. For example, if there was if there were no rain on the 17th of Marcusavon, this is sometime in October, they had a three-day private fast, Monday, Thursday, and the next Monday. And if they had fast for all kinds of unpleasant occasions like pestilence, famine, war, sieges, floods, sad things, they even had fast for dreams, to interpret a dream, to avoid ill omens that a dream might be coming to them. Oop, got to have a fast. Don't want that nightmare to come true. 
Then they would fast so that they might have good dreams. John Gill says, It is almost incredible what frequent fasting some of the rabbis exercise themselves with on very insignificant occasions. So it's certainly no shame that, Je- that Jesus' disciples didn't fast like the rabbis. The rabbis basically fasted for two reasons, for very sad things like wars and famines, or for superstitious things. I mentioned some of their fastings about dreams. Let me go into more detail here. They would fast if they wanted to have a dream and didn't have one. And then they would fast if they wanted any dream that they might have to be a good one and not a bad one. And then, of course, they would fast to interpret the dream. They would fast to avoid ill effects from bad dreams, as I already mentioned. They would even fast if they wanted to see a certain famous rabbi. They would fast for everything. And Jesus was not going to go along with that pharisaical institution. He was going to break further away from it than the disciples of John the Baptist did. So he mentions the fact that everybody was happy now, and this was a slap at the Pharisees fasting for all kind of bad things, some of which were not trivial, but the point is, is things are happy now. They're not sad, so we're not going to fast. And he certainly wasn't going to get into the rote, routine, superstitious type of fasting they are. Now this raises the question, well, what about today? Well, I've often heard this verse used against the idea Christians fasting today. Well, I think that you have to be careful here because Jesus was not complaining about fasting in general. He was complaining about the way the Pharisees fasted. And if we fast for true reasons, which is to get close to God, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, Jesus said that when he was taken away, his disciples would fast. Now, of course, he was referring to fasting for reasons of sorrow, and that doesn't really apply to New Testament fasting for reasons of getting close to God. But this verse, my friends, I do not believe enjoins Christians or does not give a sanction for Christians to prohibit fast. If a Christian wants to fast, I think that's a matter of his, at least his Christian freedom. Now, Jesus didn't say this, but John the Baptist's disciples actually had a reason to fast because their leader, John the Baptist, at this time was in jail and would eventually be beheaded. So they had a reason because John the Baptist had been, they had reason to fast because John the Baptist had been taken away from them. So Jesus is referring to fasting for sad reasons. Now going back to the metaphor of the wedding feast, the wedding guests there at the feast, of course, were referring to Jesus' disciples. Adam Clark calls them the friends of the bridegroom. They went with the groom to the bride's house to pick her up and take her back to the groom's house. Now, the friends of the bridegroom were exempted from any obligations. For example, they didn't have to stay in booths at the Feast of Tabernacles. Because Why? Because you need to be festive if you're a friend of the bridegroom because a wedding feast lasted a week. Jewish weddings lasted forever, and you're supposed to be partying the whole time. You can't party in a booth. So they didn't have to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. They didn't have to uh, pray even when uh, they were a friend of the bridegroom because it's not time to pray when you're at a wedding. You're supposed to be having a party. They didn't have to wear phylacteries. That's too serious, studying the Bible. They didn't have to fast, and they didn't have to mourn. So the Pharisees themselves had the answer to their own question, why Jesus' disciples weren't fasting because Jesus says, hey, we're at a wedding feast. It's time of joy. The Messiah has come. Now, Jesus is going to give two parables illustrating his point that it is inappropriate to fast at a wedding feast, at his wedding feast. The two parables are the parable of the new patch on the old garment and the parable of the new wine in the old wineskin. So we'll take the first one up first. This is in Mark chapter 2, verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Unshrunk means it's new. Hasn't had time to shrink yet. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. Now, what that means is that the you take a piece of cloth that's not shrunk yet, like the old garment, the new, the new patch is the, the new piece of cloth, and you sew it on a hole in the old garment, and then that new patch will shrink because it hasn't had time to shrink yet. And as it shrinks, it's attached around the edges to the old garment. So as, it sh as the new patch shrinks, it pulls the old garment out of shape and wrinkles and disfigures it. In other words, it just doesn't work. So what Jesus' point is, is don't try, to make, don't try to take the practices of the old Pharisaical religion and put them in Jesus' kingdom. The two things don't have a thing to do with each other. And in fact, constantly war with each other. So if you end up with a religious system that is half Pharisee, half kingdom of God, that bastard kingdom will be destroyed, and Jesus' true kingdom will be hurt. So, so, and so what he's saying is no compatibility with the Pharisees in the kingdom of God, just like fasting. The Pharisees' fasting is not compatible with the kingdom of God. One is joy, one is death. So let me iterate the point that the parable of the patch, of the new patch on the old garment and the new wine and the old wineskins, those two parables illustrate Jesus' point about fasting. You can't fast at a wedding feast just like you can't be a Pharisee and a follower of Jesus, just like you can't patch new cloth, excuse me, old cloth with a new cloth, just like you can't put new wine in old wineskins. They don't have anything to do with each other. So now let's go to the other parable, the parable of the wineskins. Mark 2, verse 22 says this, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, what Jesus is referring to here is that goat skins were used to hold wine back then, and it, the goat skins, if they were fresh, when you put new wine, which is basically partially grape juice that hadn't fermented yet, yet, that new wine would ferment and would start releasing gases. And as the gas expands, you would need the goat skin to expand also if it's a fresh goat skin it would expand but if it was an old goat skin that had already expanded as far as it was going to go that releasing gas from the fermenting wine would pop the old goat skins and the new wine would then run out onto the floor thus destroying not only the old goat skin but the new wine now the point of this parable is very simple he's saying look you try to mix all this dead works Phariseeism this law, 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 man-made law, 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 law. You put that onto the joy of the kingdom, and you're going to not only not have wine, you're not going to have the joy of the new wine. You're not going to have Jesus. You're not even going to have the old form. You're not even going to have the rabbinic Phariseeism either because the two are so utterly contradictory to each other and incompatible with each other that they will end up destroying each other. And that's exactly what's happened. Jesus basically destroyed Phariseeism. Uh, it would, well, it didn't happen because... Jesus didn't try to mix the two forms. However, there were Judaizers that tried it. Where are they now? You'll always have people trying to mix law with the kingdom, and they end up destroying themselves, and spilling the new wine all over the floor. This is a great parable against legalism in the Christian church. Now, I'm going to make a, a more subtle point here. We need to know that Jesus did not criticize new wineskins. He was criticizing putting new wine into old wineskins. The Pharisees, the rabbinic system was the old wineskins. But he said, but he didn't say anything about new wine just existing by itself on the floor somewhere. You got to put the new wine into 
a new wineskin. So the new wineskin would be the Christian church as opposed to the rabbinic system. So we have a wineskin of a different sort. Now, I think this is a word of wisdom for those who think that two or three gathered together is a quote-unquote church. I ran into this a lot after spending years dealing with house church people who were so anti-institutional and so low church. They went to no church. They went from low church to no church. They went from the scriptural church to a church that's just, oh, yeah, we got together. We got a couple of cats and dogs sitting on the, on the sofas. We got a couple of friends together. Hey, we have a church. No, you don't. Besides that, two or three gathered together, that was talking about church disciplined people. That was not talking about making a church. So that's taken out of context. Nothing wrong with new wineskins, folks. And I'll tell you one thing, the program-oriented church in America that all it thinks about is how much money we can take in, how big a church we can build, and how many boring programs and boring sermons can we propagate. They think that's church, but it ain't. It ain't church at all. They need a new wineskin just like the Pharisees needed a new wineskin. And no, I'm not calling them Pharisees. I'm tempted to, but I'm not. I'm just making an analogy. Now, to reiterate Jesus' point here, the new wine, which is the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, is absolutely incompatible with Phariseeism. The kingdom of God on earth will be totally ruined if it is connected with Phariseeism. So, the next time you feel like putting law on your Christian brothers and sisters, just think of this parable. You are ruining the new wine. You are bringing misery and condemnation and gloom, doom, and despair on a Christian who ought to be full of, full of the life of Jesus Christ. Phariseeism is works righteousness, legalism, spiritual death, condemnation. Is that what you want in your church or in your Christian life? I wouldn't think so. Going to the other extreme is people who talk about the new wine all the time and don't mention the new wine skin. People, these people love to talk about getting rid of old wineskins, but they completely forget about our duty to provide new wineskins. These are the extreme, I call them extreme house church people that I've run into that just keep talking about their anti-authority. They don't want leadership. They don't want church. They don't want tithing. They don't want anything. They just want to sit around with their dog on a sofa and say, I'm, a Christ, I'm in church now. No, they're not. Two extremes, folks. We need to avoid them both. Moving on to Mark chapter 2, verse 23, we read this. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. Now, it's important to point out this was on a Sabbath day because this is what engendered the following controversy. Verse 24 says this, The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 2, the Pharisees didn't speak directly to Jesus. They spoke to the disciples, but some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The reconciliation of that is he, they complained to both Jesus and the disciples. Mark uh, chapter 2, verse 25 through 26 goes on. Jesus And he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, Have you never read? And that's sort of a, a little ironic slap at them. I think you Pharisees are supposed to be such believers and, 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 and are supposed to be so knowledgeable in the law, and you've never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the sacred bread. This is when David was running from Saul. He had some soldiers with him. They were out of food, and they showed up at Nob, or Nob, Nob, I guess it is, north of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle was being kept by the high, by the high priest there. Verse 26 in Mark 2, how he entered the house of God, how David entered the house of God in the time of Abiah for the high priest and ate the sacred bread. And that was the bread that was laid out on the table of showbread, the bread of the presence it was called, or the showbread. 
It was supposed to symbolize that God was the bread of life for Israel. It was kept in the table in the holy place. And it was specifically forbidden in the Levitical law for anybody except a consecrated priest to eat that bread. David was not a priest, nor was his soldiers, and he ended up eating that bread. How David entered the house of God and ate the bread, showbread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except a priest, and also gave some to his companions. So not only David, but his companions, his soldier friends, ate that consecrated holy bread. Verse 27, Then he, Jesus, told them, the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, and met man not for the Sabbath. Now, the purpose of the Sabbath was a spiritual, mental, and physical restoration through rest. It, by the way, it was not meant for a worship day. They were supposed to worship God all the time. This was for a rest day. And it was supposed to be symbolized. It was a day of rest to symbolize that spiritual rest which we enter into when we believe in Jesus, as in Hebrew ch chapter 4. It's a type of the spiritual rest we have in Christ. Jesus finishes up in verse 28, Mark 2, Therefore the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I'm going to use Matthew, the parallel passages in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. And also we're going to look at a little bit in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 6, I think it is. 1 through 7. Excuse me, 1 through 5. We're going to use those two parallel passages. And we're going to look at this issue, which is sort of complicated. Now, it was real easy for Jesus to defend the charge against his disciples that he was violating the law, because he wasn't. He wasn't violating the law, and we'll show that. But what makes this thing a little bit complicated is that Jesus used an example to defend his disciples from the Old Testament in which David did break the law of Moses, obviously broke the law of Moses. Well, in my opinion, what Jesus is doing is using an affortiori argument. He's saying, look, if David can break the law of Moses and nobody complains about that, well, then our, my disciples haven't broken the law of Moses, so even more, I fortiori, even more are they innocent of breaking the Sabbath. So having said that, let's, let's start with Matthew 12, 1 here and, and point out that, just make the argument that the disciples were not breaking any law. The reason I say that is because the law in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, says this, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads of grain with your hand, but you must not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. So there's no question it was all right for the disciples to pluck. But the problem was, was it all right to pluck on Saturday? And that was what the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus on. Now, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures were unclear, or excuse me, not unclear, but did not say anything about plucking on the Sabbath. They just said it's illegal to do servile work on the Sabbath. Now, the question is, is doing, is picking grains doing servile work on the Sabbath? Now, there's no question it violated the rabbinic laws that were added to Moses. That's not a question. You know, the Pharisaical laws, yes, they had a rule against doing that. You were supposed to pluck and rub in your hands the day before the Sabbath. But that's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about now, was it illegal to do servile work? Well, I don't see how anybody can say that plucking grains on the Sabbath is doing servile work. Servile work was work which was done in order to make a living. Jesus gave a lot of examples in his ministry of when it was perfectly all right to do good on the Sabbath, which is just another way of saying that doing good on the Sabbath is not servile work. Now, my NIV study Bible says that Jesus is basing his defense here of his disciples plucking on Sabbath. He was basing it on the principle of they're hungry, they, they, they need, something good needs to be done for them on the Sabbath. And that's one way you can look at it. Let me give you some examples 
of what Jesus said was okay to do on the Sabbath, which was not considered a violation of the Sabbath. This is in Luke chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good? Or, Well, of course it's lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good. And all the rabbis acknowledged that. Then, then he, he healed a man whose uh, hand was withered. Luke chapter 13, verses, verse 14. The leader of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? In other words, look, the ox is hungry. He needs to eat. It's not servile labor to lead your ox to eat water on the Sabbath. And to interpret the Mosaic prohibitions against work on the Sabbath that way is absurd. It leads to unkindness and cruelty. And then he healed the woman with the issue of blood for 18 years. After saying that, Luke chapter 14 he asked the Pharisees in verse 3, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man and healed him. And then he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Well, you have to work, you know, when you pull an ox out of the well, but it's, it's doing good. So you see, the Pharisees were taking the Mosaic prohibitions against working on the Sabbath and carrying them to an absurd extreme. Where you, you could, I mean, if you think about it, the physical definition of work, if, you, if I lift my little finger, I did work in the, in the physics sense of the word, I did work. But that's not what Jesus, that's not what Moses meant. And so I think that Jesus' defense would have been ironclad just by saying, look, they're hungry, they need to eat. The law allows plucking a neighbor's grain. They're not doing work in the sense of the, uh, that Moses meant, and, and he gave all these other examples. He, he, could give, he could have given all those other examples. So right there, his defense is already ironclad. But now he goes back, and he uses David's adventure in the house of Ahimelech, the high priest at Nob, Nob excuse me, in, in the book of Samuel to defend his actions, 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. Now, let me read that passage to you. David went to, well, first of all, we need to deal with a minor problem here. Ahimelech, in 1 Samuel 21, it says that David went to Ahimelech, the priest. But in Mark 2, where we are now, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says that David entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. So Mark, Jesus says Abiathar, 1 Samuel 21 says Ahimelech, what's the, what's the, this two different priests? There's several ways you can reconcile that. First of all, perhaps both Ahimelech and Abiathar were high priests. For after all, in the time of Jesus' crucifixion, both Annas and Caiaphas were called high priests. Annas, the being the oldest high priest, who passed it on to his son-in-law, or later it came to his son-in-law. Or it could have been that in 1 Samuel 21:1, the Scripture does not say that Ahimelech was the high priest. It just says he was a priest. David went to Ahimelech the priest. So it could have been that. It was the time of Abiathar who was the high priest, but it was Ahimelech who gave the bread to David. I think that's the easiest way to reconcile it right there. Could be a transcription error by scribes, according to BibleStudyTools.com. I don't like to go to that unless it's necessary. I think the easiest way to say is that Ahimelech was not the high priest. He was just a priest. It doesn't really matter except to uh, point out that the Bible does not have errors in it and to defend against blasphemous liberal Protestants who love to say that the Bible's got errors in it and therefore we can't believe, we can't trust the Bible. All right, so having said that, we see that David, excuse me, I was going to finish quoting to you 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. David went to Ahimelech the priest at Nob. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David. 
And the reason was as David was fleeing from Saul, and if the high priest was siding with David, Saul could get mad and kill Ahimelech. So he was afraid. And he said, why are you alone and no one is with you? In other words, what are you doing up here with a body of soldiers by yourself? David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king gave, him, um, gave me a mission, but he told me, don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I've ordered you to do. I have stationed my young men in a certain place. Now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest told him, there is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread. That means bread that's been made holy or dedicated to the Lord by going through the priestly rituals. But the young men may eat it only if they've kept themselves from women. Well, it's kind of interesting. It's superfluous. To, I mean, if you're going to eat bread that's consecrated for priests, you don't give it to people who aren't priests. What difference does it make whether they've had sex with a woman or not? But according, you know, that's the way these priests think. They're big on Levitical purifications and all. I'm not even sure that's in the scriptures. That might have been something that added to the Old Testament scriptures about not having sex before you go to war. David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. In other words, we haven't touched anything unclean even as we go out, not even going to battle, but just going out on a routine patrol. We're consecrated. We're holy. Don't worry about it, Abiathar. Ahimelech, excuse me. Give us the bread. We're hungry. For there was no bread there except the bread of the presence, that's the showbread, that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. Now, it's debated whether this was on Saturday or not, Sabbath. It usually is removed on, sab on, on Saturday. And so I'm going to assume that. When the bread was removed, it, it had been replaced with warm bread. Since it, it was replaced with warm bread, that was usually done on the Sabbath day. Now, you can't really tell from reading this passage where David ate the old bread only or the bread that was currently in the temple but really, the Jews said it in the case of hunger, both could be eaten, whether it was in the temple or not in the temple. Case of necessity. But since David only took five and not twelve, I assume that David took the old show bread. Maybe the seven loaves had already been eaten by a priest, because he only took five. Seems like if he was hungry and had men with him, he would have taken all the old twelve. It was already on the table of showbread currently in the temple. Now, Jesus goes on in Matthew 12, verses 5 through 6 in our parallel passage. Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days, the priest in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? Now, what he's talking about here is the priest's got to do a lot of work on the Sabbath, and that's not breaking the law. They had to skin the animals. They had to, let's see, what did all they have to do? They had to skin the animals. They had to bake the bread, although some people say they broke the bread. They baked the bread the day before, and they kept it hot in an oven, waiting to when they replaced it on Saturday. But at any rate, they had to do a lot of work, even on Saturday, and they're innocent. They didn't break the law, and so Jesus, again, is making an a fortiori argument. He said, look, he says, the priests are working on Saturday. They're not breaking the law. They're not doing servile labor. My disciples, yeah, they worked a little bit when they plucked the grain, but they didn't break any, any law. They didn't break the law. And then he finishes it all up by saying, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Of course, that's Jesus is here. By the way, there's another scripture I didn't read earlier, where you can do work on the Sabbath and not violate the law. Jesus in John 7, verses 22 through 23 said this, You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? So you see, circumcising a man on the Sabbath was work. So you had to work in order to keep the, the ritual provisions of the Old Testament law. And if you had to work to do that, why is it why is it okay for my men to eat pluck grains and work on the Sabbath, if you want to call that work, especially since the law said it was all right to pluck grains? 
Jesus goes on in Matthew 12, 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, again, it was so easy to defend the disciples against breaking the law for plucking the grains. And then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, though. Why are you nitpicking here, you Pharisees? You don't care that my disciples were hungry. All you are interested in is condemnation. You don't care what's legal. You don't care what's just. And you don't desire mercy. Of course, that desire and mercy and not sacrifice, that's, has a, uh, that comes from the Old Testament. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire loyalty. The NIV says mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That doesn't mean he was against the burnt offerings or against the law. You know, fine, he wanted the burnt offerings to go. But what he's saying is don't do the burnt offerings and throw the mercy out. Matthew 9.13, he said this again. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is a, a this is a common plea of Jesus as he fights legalism. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now Jesus says here in Matthew 12:7, if you had known what this means, he's mocking them because they're supposed to know everything. Their reputation for their knowledge was very great. He was also mocking their humanity. If you'd known what mercy meant for condemning disciples for, for plucking a few ears of grain. And then he finishes in Matthew 12, 8, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I am more important than all your stupid rabbinical laws. I am even more important than the Old Testament law. Because remember, he used the example of David who broke not the Pharisees' traditions. He broke the Old Testament law. doesn't matter. He said he was Lord of the Sabbath. And he pointed out an example where David broke the Sabbath unquestionably. And no rabbi ever complained about that. So why are you complaining about my disciples who have not broken an Old Testament law, but have merely broken the laws of the Pharisees? And you might get upset about breaking the traditions of the elders, but I'm not, because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So let me summarize this. Jesus defends the, his disciples based upon the law of necessity, which is the same thing as saying doing good on the Sabbath. Your ox falls in the ditch. It was, it'll be, it'll, it's necessary to get him out of the ditch. It's doing good to get him out of the ditch. So that's the same way of saying the law of necessity or doing good on the Sabbath. This is the way most commentators take it, and I do too. But I point out further that he used an example of David in the Old Testament where it, it, it truly was a matter of necessity, and so there's a parallel between the Old Covenant example and, and Jesus' current New Covenant situation of his disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. There is a parallel there. However, there's something more, it's something deeper. David broke the old covenant law because of necessity. And if he could do that, well, why can't the disciples break a pharisaical law based on necessity? It is clear that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and to start putting out rules about whether you can watch the Super Bowl on Sunday, whether you can cut the grass on Sunday, and to have those Sabbatarian rules thrown at you by preachers who are working their buns off on Sunday, it is not only hypocritical, it is foolish. And besides, most Reformed people can't even agree on what's doing work on the Sunday Sabbath. By, and by the way, I thought the Sabbath was on a Saturday, not on a Sunday. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of Mark chapter 2. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll take up Mark chapter 3 starting in the next audio.